That is in the huge numbers. I'm better back here. Uh, it's good to see you guys. Um, good to be back today with you in person. Uh, I am going to preach this morning. It will be a little bit shorter than uh, than what we normally do, but um, it's just it's good to be back. Carrie is at home with the baby this morning, but we're so thankful that uh, she's recovering from her surgery. Um, that's a crazy story unto itself. That at some point I'd love to share. Uh, and Robert is doing well. I have a picture of him. I know they put one up last week, but uh, there's Robert, and uh, yeah, he's, uh, he's doing great, and you know, the one thing nobody did prepare me, people have told me a lot of things over the last nine months, but the one thing that nobody did tell me about with, with boys, and this might not be universal, but with ours, um, just how much, while his diaper's being changed, he pees. Uh, during, because um, I've seen that scene in like movies and TV shows, so I, I knew that that's a thing that can happen. I don't think I expected it to happen on average about once a day, but uh, but we're we're thankful for him, and uh, I would like to thank everyone from the church for your prayers, and there have been people who have made meals for us, and we just were sincerely appreciative of that. Uh, Exodus chapter 10 is where we'll be this morning, uh, and then after we finish up, just as a reminder, we have a potluck that we're doing downstairs. Um, Exodus chapter 10, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 20, and uh, sometimes with a little bit longer of a section, I'm just going to quote an excerpt from our text, and um, really the two goals I have, again, it's a shorter message today, but to really try to capture the magnitude of the plague of locusts and also the opportunity that everyone has in these plagues to follow God. So Exodus chapter 10, I'm actually going to start in verse 12. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land all, the, all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt. And the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came up all over the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt. Such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been before nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land, so that the land was darkened. And they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hell had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field, through all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now, therefore, forgive my sin, please. Only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord. And the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you again for Scott and Aldean and for them being with us today. And Lord, we thank you for what he shared with us 
Lord, we thank you again for the many years that this church has partnered with them. Lord, and we continue to pray for the work that they're doing. Lord, we also want to pray for people from this church right now who have COVID. Um, Lord, we pray for Bob and Sonny. We pray for Roger and Joy, just for speedy recoveries. Lord, if for anyone else who might have the virus, Lord, we pray for them. Uh, Lord, we pray for the health of the people of this congregation. And Lord, we pray for our time of fellowship today as we enjoy a meal. And we pray for our time right now as we study in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In the summer of 1874, trillions of locusts wrought havoc on the Great Plains, from Montana to the Dakotas and Minnesota, eventually making their way all the way to Texas. There was little that farmers could do to stop them. Word of coming invasions of locusts spread faster than the locusts themselves. But even with advanced warning, there was little to stop the swarms. Some farmers actually set fires around the perimeter of their lands. But in some instances, there's records that so many locusts at times smothered the fires out. A true plague. That same summer in 1874, Laura, Mary, and Carrie Ingalls with Ma and Pa moved to their home in Plum Creek, Minnesota. And on the banks of Plum Creek, in the famous Little House on the Prairie book series, Laura Ingalls Wilder describes the invasion of locusts. Plunk. Something hit Laura's head and fell to the ground. She looked down and saw the largest grasshopper she had ever seen. Then, huge ground grasshoppers were hitting the ground all around her, hitting her head and her face and her arms. They came thudding down like hail. The cloud was hailing grasshoppers. The cloud was grasshoppers. Their bodies hid the sun and made darkness. Their thin, large wings gleamed and glittered. The rasping, whirring of their wings filled the whole air, and they hit the ground in the house with the noise of a hailstorm. Grasshoppers covered the ground. There was not one bare bit to step on. Laura had to step on the grasshoppers, and they smashed, squirming and slimy under her feet. Then Laura heard another sound, one big sound made of tiny nips and snips and gnawings. The grasshoppers were eating. You could hear millions of jaws biting and chewing. Day after day, the grasshoppers kept eating. They ate all the wheat and the oats. They ate every green thing, all the garden and all the prairie grass. The whole prairie was bare and brown. Millions of brown grasshoppers whirled low over it. Not a green thing was in sight every, anywhere. And today, we continue looking at the plagues of Exodus. We come to the eighth plague of locusts. After suffering through a series of plagues, Having the ecosystem turned upside down, the deaths of livestock, painful boils, horrible hailstorms, we see locusts. And like the Great Plains invasion of locusts in 1874, in Exodus chapter 10, we will read of the great destruction that was brought forth by locusts. By the way, in Little House on the Prairie, Laura Ingalls Wilder says grasshoppers, it's locusts. And for what it's worth, a locust is a type of grasshopper. But we'll jump into our passage this morning. 
And once again, we'll be a little bit shorter than normal. And we'll be looking at three scenes in this passage. We'll see, I'm sorry, four scenes in this passage. The plague is warned. A failed negotiation attempt. The plague happens. And we'll see Pharaoh's effort to stop the plague. And with that, we'll jump into this passage this morning. Beginning in verses 1 and 2, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. Now, verse 2 gets at the generational nature of the work which the Lord is doing in this plague and in all the plagues. That the Exodus is meant to be a generational and historical event. For the Israelites, it was something meant for their children and their grandchildren and for future generations up to today. As we are given this story as an example of God's Glorious miracles that he did to free his people from slavery in Egypt. The Exodus in the Old Testament is the gospel. It is constantly pointed back to. Dozens, if not hundreds, of references to this are made throughout the rest of the Old Testament to God redeeming Israel. Constantly pointed back to the importance of remembering these events. In Exodus 20, right before the giving of the Ten Commandments, it's mentioned. During the desert wanderings, the Israelites are pointed back to God's redeeming work and bringing them out of Egypt. In later generations, the prophets point back to this, to God's work, in contrast with Israel's failure to follow God's covenant. For the Israelites... They had a story that pointed them back to God's great act of redemption and freeing them from slavery. And for Christians, we have a story that points us back to God's great act of redemption and freeing us from the slavery of sin through the grace of Christ. As the Israelites were to tell their children and their grandchildren about what God had done for them, we are called to tell the next generation about what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. To remember God's work, not just to know the story and to keep it to ourselves, but to continue passing it along, both to the next generation and to the people around us. Stories are powerful in communicating lessons and values, teaching us about where we came from and who we are. And the gospel does all of that. In his commentary of Exodus, Philip Ryken says, it explains who we are, the people of God. It explains where we came from, a life of sin and misery. It explains where we are going, to live, in, to live with Christ in mansions of glory. And it explains who God is, the Father of mercy and love. And it explains why we are here, to glorify God by living for Christ. Stories are powerful. A great movie can be enjoyed over and over again. A great family story that you've heard a million times can still bring joy to hear again. And God's story matters. And both the Exodus and with the gospel and throughout the Bible, 
We see God's story of redeeming and restoring a sinful humanity to himself. In verse 2, God says that in telling this story to future generations, you may know that I am God. The stories of God's work are powerful. And again, it matters that we tell the story of what God has done. If I saved your life, you would tell people about it. Every person in town would know. We honor those who do great things to save and to preserve and to protect others. We tell those stories, yet we so often don't tell the story of what God has done in our own souls. Why is that? Again, we're called to share that with our children and with the rest of the world. The story of what God has done and is doing in the world. It's a story that stirs the human heart, that points people to God, that points people to goodness, to truth, and to life. That we are sinful people and we are dead in our sins. But Jesus, the Son of God, came into the world. He lived a life without sin. He lived the life we could not live and died the death that we deserved so that we could have eternal life with him in heaven. And that's the truest thing there is. And that's the greatest reality there is. And that is the gospel. That we don't have to get it all figured out. We don't have to get everything right. But we do need to come to Jesus. Romans 10.13 says that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. When we believe and trust in Jesus, that there is forgiveness and life. In Exodus... Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh with the warning of the plague of locusts. Verses 3 through 6. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country, and they shall cover the face of the land, so that no one can see the land. And they shall eat what is left to you after the hail, and they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field. And they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians, as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on earth To this day. So there we have the official warning of the plague of locusts, which will come if Pharaoh refuses to allow the Israelites to go. Moses says that they will cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land. And when he's had seven other plagues, and he's told that the locusts will come, Pharaoh still does not relent. The passage says that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. While Pharaoh doesn't allow the Israelites to leave, some of his his advisors are starting to have a change of heart. In verse 7, Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not understand that Egypt is ruined? Pharaoh's servants look at the destruction 
and feel like their society has been destroyed. And they're like, just let them go. What's this all for? We come to the second scene, a failed negotiation, verse 8. We see a brief scene where Pharaoh tries to negotiate something else that we've seen in other plagues before. But we don't have any leverage before an all-powerful Lord. Pharaoh will feign willingness to free some of the Israelites. Verse 8. So Moses and Aaron went. So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go, serve the Lord your God. But which ones are to go? So Pharaoh says that they can go, but then asks, Who will be going? He doesn't want all of the Israelites to go. Because if some stay back, that will increase the likelihood that they'll return. But Moses has been directed by the Lord, and he is not in a position to negotiate. Verse 9. Moses said, We will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and our daughters, with our flocks and our herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. In other words... Everyone will go. Verse 11, Pharaoh will say, No, go the men among you and serve the Lord. For that is what you were asking. So Pharaoh was only willing to allow the men to go for this religious feast. Again, he's counting on them coming back to Egypt if their wives and children are left behind. But that will not do. This worship and God's plan is meant not just for the Israelite men, but for all of Israel. And since Pharaoh, again, has refused to listen to the Lord, he will not have to bear the force of God's judgment. Third scene, the plague, verses 13 to 15. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt And the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt. Such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been seen before, nor will ever be again. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened, and they ate all the plants of the land, and all the fruit of the trees that the hill had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field, through all of Egypt. The destruction is unleashed. When the text says that the locusts covered the whole ground, when we think back to Laura Engels Wilder's memoir, that's probably not such an exaggeration. The vastness of what a swarm of locusts can be like. Few facts about locusts. The desert locust is the most destructive pest on earth. In many parts of the world, they're a common nuisance today. But when the conditions are just right, when there are heavy rains and wet soil, a physical change happens in the locusts, which gives the conditions for them forming these massive swarms where they begin to reproduce more rapidly. Well, one locust is pretty insignificant. 
a massive swarm of locusts can cause almost unimaginable damage. Some good news for us, the Rocky Mountain locust, which plagued the Great Plains in the 1870s, actually went extinct in 1902, and there are no North American species of locust. A swarm of locusts can have over 100 million locusts in a square mile. And the swarm can be the size of a city. Large swarms can have tens of billions of locusts. They eat nearly their body weight a day. They will eat crops, flowers, leaves, grains, and tree bark. And if they run out of food, locusts will begin to cannibalize each other. From 2003 to 2005, swarms did $2.5 billion in crop losses in Africa. According to the United Nations Food and Agricultural Organization, the number of locusts in a square mile can consume the same amount in a day as 35,000 people. I know, that sounds impossible. But there's just so many of them. Locusts are mobile. A locust can travel 120 miles in a day. In 1988, swarms of locusts went from Africa to England. Last year, and continuing into this year, due to heavy rains, several countries in Africa, the Middle East, and Asia had plagues of locusts which impacted food supplies for millions of people. Again, they are still a present problem in the world. In our verse, when in our passage where verse 15 gets at the impact of the locusts, and it says, Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. Something to keep in mind. We live in a time and place where we have lots of resources. If we don't have enough food, there are things that can be done. It might cost more, but we can get food. But for the Egyptians, having their crops totally wiped out by the locusts would have created a situation that was incredibly perilous and dangerous. And as we've seen in the other plagues, the Lord will use something natural as an instrument of judgment. Sin is serious. And the sin of Pharaoh was serious as he continued to refuse to release the Israelites. Earlier in this chapter, Pharaoh had arrogantly dealt with Moses and Aaron. But amid the destruction of the locusts, he must again return to Moses and Aaron with his tail between his legs. And that brings us to our fourth and final scene. Pharaoh's efforts to stop the plague. As he's done before, he'll talk the talk when he says in verse 16, Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now, therefore, forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. We've seen this pattern in some of the other plagues where Pharaoh asks for an intervention he asks for Moses to intercede and go to the Lord on his behalf. Pharaoh uses the right language. He talks of his sin and asking for forgiveness. We've seen it before. And Moses takes that apology before the Lord in verse 18. And in verse 19, 
And the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. The Lord answers the prayer. The Lord wipes out the locusts in the Red Sea, foreshadowing what will happen to Pharaoh himself in chapter 14. But how does Pharaoh respond by having this prayer answered? The section ends by saying that he did not let the people of Israel go. Once again, Pharaoh has made a promise and then reneged on his promise. But here's what's so amazing about this whole sequence of events with Pharaoh. Pharaoh keeps seeing the Lord answer his prayers, and yet never listens to God, never worships God, never turns to God in faith. Instead, Pharaoh continues to be spared, and whatever repentance he just spoke of, we see was ultimately insincere, as we see time and time again that he has not been changed. Pharaoh might say that he's sorry and use the right language and talking about his sin and do this when he's suffering. Which is interesting in itself that he has an idea of what to say. He has the right religious language. I think there's lots of people in our world who can talk the talk, who know what to say, but who don't really have the heart behind the words to back up what they're saying. But whenever things for Pharaoh return to normal, he continues in direct rebellion against the Lord. Empty and faithless words. Wanting God's blessing, but not wanting God. Wanting God's grace, but not wanting to live for God. There's nothing new under the sun. Again, people still play these games today. People want cheap grace. People want easy grace. People want God to do what they want them to do so that they can go back to doing what they want to do. And God is patient. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But he is also righteous and just. We see God continue to be patient and to give chances. Pharaoh has again and again made promises to free the Israelites only to refuse. God knows all of this. God is patient with us. But there will be a time when patience runs out. There will be a time when our lives end. And there will be an ultimate day of reckoning. And while God is gracious and merciful, he does not compromise on insincere faith. He doesn't tolerate phony moralism. And he will not accept disingenuous confessions and repentance. God is all-knowing. He knows who we are. He knows our hearts. He knows where our faith truly is. And so let us not go through life playing games. Let us not have our plan to be to really confess and to really repent on our deathbed. Because tomorrow is not promised. Let us live for God today. Why? Because that's the best way to live. Because it's the truest way to live. Because it's the most blessed way to live. Not turning from God and living for ourselves and pursuing what we want. 
but living for the Lord and for his kingdom. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we again thank you for this day and the opportunity to study your word. Lord, there are so many things in our world and society that aim to distract us and pull us away from you, but may we have a focus on you and living for you and being your disciples and growing in faith and sharing the good news. In Jesus' name, amen.